As we look at Daniel 9, I encourage you to open uh, your Bibles to that chapter. If you don't have one with you, I encourage you to grab one from a seat nearby you um, so that we can follow along together. So uh, what we're doing in this time is really what Paul exhorts uh, Timothy, a pastor, to do in 1 Timothy, and that's to, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Uh, So that's a job description for me this morning. Uh, for us then to, together to be devoted to pu- the public reading of Scripture and then in light of that to exhort and to teach from that. So we'll be reading all of Daniel chapter 9 in a few moments. And it's a little bit longer, um, but that note from First Timothy is encouraging uh, to me as well because the Lord Himself calls us to be devoted to reading Scripture together. And it's where we hear His voice most clearly. So before we read that though and consider it, this chapter has two parts. Uh, Most of it is a prayer, and then there's a prophecy. So Daniel prays to God, and then God responds to his prayer by giving him a a future hope of a salvation, the salvation that Jesus brings. So this is a prayer of confession, and then a prophecy for the future. And Daniel has been in exile now in Babylon, away from the land of Israel for almost 70 years by the time he prays this. And in this chapter, he prays for God to forgive his people, to end their exile from the land, to restore Jerusalem. And God responds to this prayer with a prophecy of hope, but the hope will actually be a long time in coming. The fulfillment of that hope will be a long time in coming for Daniel. So this is really a chapter in many ways for those who long for God's kingdom to come in its fullness. And yet it seems like it is a long time coming. We still feel that today. In many ways, we live on the other side of the fulfillment of the promises that God gives Daniel. Jesus has come and brought his salvation and his kingdom. And yet, the salvation that Jesus brings is, as we see all over the New Testament, already and not yet. It's already begun. It's not yet fully here. And so we wait for that not yet Uh, the salvation that's not yet fully here. And so we're waiting for Jesus to return, to set the world to rights, to renew this world and bring in a kingdom of peace and flourishing in its fullness. And it feels like it can be a long time in coming, especially in a year and a season like this. But the hope of this chapter is what we need. This chapter shows us God's love for his people and his grace for our future. So let's read Daniel chapter 9 together. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. 
To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. And to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he's done, and we've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, Our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and do his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon our sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Isn't that a great line in hope? O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now here's God's response. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight At the time of the evening sacrifice, he made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And here it is. Seventy weeks, or seventy-sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal or fulfill both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place or holy one. Now, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a time of trouble. And after the 62 weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. 
and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, let's consider both this prayer and this prophetic hope. Uh, So we'll first see why Daniel prayed, and then what he prayed, and then God's response. So why did he pray? Well, Daniel is here pouring out his heart because two things have happened. First, Babylon, this great world empire that he's been living in the midst of for almost 70 years now, just fell to the next world empire in history, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. So verse 1 says, Darius the Mede, who may be, may be the same person as Cyrus, different name, is now king. Babylon was the great world empire, but now it fell. So that just happened. Second, Daniel was reading the Bible, the scriptures up to the point in that, in, in that time. So he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, just like you could do if you turn back several pages in your Bible. He's reading Jeremiah, and he realized from reading a couple places in Jeremiah that Israel's exile in Babylon, Babylon, God said ahead of time, would last 70 years. It was about to end then. Babylon would fall, and God would restore his people. It would be 70 years. And so notice in verse 2, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord of Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's probably reading Jeremiah 29.10 that God promised to bring Israel back. But Jeremiah also said in his prophecy in 29 and other places that Israel needed to turn back to him, to the Lord. They needed to repent and seek the Lord with their whole hearts. And so this explains then why Daniel doesn't just celebrate, right? He doesn't just say, look, it's about to end. We're going home. Let's celebrate. Instead, he offers this desperate prayer because he knows that the Lord will restore his people, but the people of the Lord need to return to the Lord. They need to repent. And so he offers this prayer because Israel has not done this up to this point. They they remained, even in exile, recalcitrant, resistant to the Lord. And so that's why he prayed. Well, now, second, what did he pray? Maybe you've heard this acronym for prayer that's helpful. I often follow it. Um, ACTS, A-C-T-S, right? A for adoration. We adore God for who he is. C is confession. We confess any sins we have not yet confessed to the Lord. Thanksgiving, T, we thank the Lord for his grace to us through Jesus and all of his blessings. And S, supplication, we ask for what only he can give. Daniel's prayer mostly follows this pattern. He includes adoration at the beginning and throughout, confession and supplication. So let's walk through each of these. So first, adoration. This is where he starts in verse 4. You can look with me. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. Now, most of Daniel's prayer is confession. But right here at the beginning and sprinkled throughout, he has these prayers of adoration. He starts by affirming who God is, that he's a God of love and faithfulness. And starting this way is actually what makes confession, the confession he's about to offer, uh, not a burden but a gift. Because we don't come to a God who may or may not accept us. 
We don't confess our sins to Him with sincerity, but knowing that uh, we have like an uncertain future here. Instead, we know that He's gracious to us. We come to a God who's filled with steadfast love and faithfulness here. When Jesus came, He showed us what God is really like. And what is God like? He's the friend of sinners. And He welcomes all who come to Him with true confession and repentance. So, you know, if we don't remember that God is eager to forgive us when we come to Him like this, then we actually, um, there will be a big obstacle to being open and honest about our sin. I mean, why would we be totally open and honest with the Lord if we aren't sure how He'll accept us? We will only be honest about just how bad our hearts really are and what we've actually done if we know just how kind He is. You have to know he's love, He loves you. You have to know that He's safe in order to be totally transparent and open about who you are before Him. And I think we, you know, we know this by experience. Um, kids, do you ever feel um, hesitant to be honest about something you have done that you know is wrong with your parents? Do you ever feel hesitant because you're not sure how they'll respond and you think they may just be angry with you? Um, but has there also been a time where you've realized that they loved you deeply and they'll accept you? Even if there's consequences and discipline, it's for your good and they love you and you can be totally open with them because they're safe. Have you had that experience? I've, I've noticed both with my children um, in various times where they fear that I'll just be angry with them. And then when there's a, a window where they realize that, no, that's actually not how he'll respond, uh, they're open. It's the same with the Lord. We have to know who He is. We have to know His character. We have to get rid of these suspicions in our heart uh, that He'll just reject us. And so if you think God is cold and exacting, then you will not go to Him in confession. Or you will do that, but you'll do that in the way the religions of the world do it, as some kind of way to earn His love, or it'll be some kind of religious act to get God to love you and accept you, and therefore confession becomes a labor. But when we know who God is, that He has open arms to those who come to Him in confession, then we can be open and honest about everything. So first, adoration, which even gives the context for confession. And now, confession. Listen to His clear, straightforward honesty in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. I mean, one after another, He calls sin bad names. And that's just at the beginning. He goes on from verses 5 to verse 14. Every verse except one has statements like this about the sin of himself and Israel. It's repeated through here. And do you notice how different the tone of that and the, the words that he used is from so many modern apologies, both to the Lord and to others, are? He didn't do, you know, the if apology. I'm sorry if I offended you, right? I'm sorry if I did something wrong. He didn't do the excuse-making but apology. I'm sorry, but this is what Tony did first, right? G giving all the emphasis to the context that makes sense of your sin uh, and emphasizing that to kind of make you basically get off the hook. He didn't do the focus-shifting apology that takes the focus off you and puts it on the other person. He didn't say, I'm sorry, God, that you feel hurt. I'm sorry that you've responded this way. He didn't do the downplaying apology. You know, Lord, mistakes were made. He didn't do the apology that's more like, 
Um, I know what I did, and I'm going to say sorry to get you off my case. I heard this a couple nights ago. We've been watching uh, The Karate Kid, those old school movies, uh, as a family recently. And um, just Friday night, we were watching the second one, and Daniel LaRusso uh, wants somebody off of his case because this dude's angry with him, and he doesn't know why. So he just says, for whatever happened, I apologize, right? Meaning, I don't think I did anything wrong. You apparently think I do. So for whatever that is, I apologize, so all, all these different ways are ways that we apologize today, and apologies become really, sub, there's a subtext communicating something else. Either you're at fault, or I'm not really at fault, or here's all the reasons why I did it. We tone down language, we call them mistakes. We get none of that here in this prayer. Daniel says, here's what we did. It was wrong, it was rebellious, it was treachery, it was wicked, and you are right in your judgment of us. John Stott wrote that many of our apologies end up covering over our sin more than uncovering them, right? The whole point of confession is to uncover, but we end up actually doing more covering over than uncovering. He said, our words have a hollow sound. Our confession is largely a formality. The truth is that we do more covering up than uncovering. We know little of the uncomfortable discipline of confessing and forsaking our sins and so finding mercy. So we see the difference in Daniel's confession here. He's straightforward and honest. He owns it. He calls it for what it is. And Daniel's leading this prayer uh, for himself and on behalf of the people of Israel. He's including the whole nation in this confession. Verses 7 and 8, he says, To us belong open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands you've driven them. He says the whole covenant people all Israel, all of us. So this is a corporate confession in one sense. But Daniel isn't just confessing something that he didn't participate in. He was a godly leader, as we've seen throughout this book, but he owns his sin as well. In verse 20, he explicitly says that he was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. So he had participated in these covenant-breaking sins in some way. Now, I don't have time this morning to kind of go into the topic of corporate confession. It's a really important one, though. Um, and this is an, just an important observation from this text as we think about corporate confession. Uh, two, two things, really. One, Daniel is a part of a group that's bound together in covenant. That's why he's confessing sin like this. He's identifying with the people. They were a covenant people bound together. And second, Daniel recognizes that he shares in the guilt because he himself has participated in these sins as well. Maybe not to the same degree. I mean, certainly not from what we know of Daniel. But he's cut from the same cloth and participates in some way. So as we think about corporate confession today in various contexts, you know, people talk about um, confessing the sins of the uh, crusades from the past um, or past things in um, our nation's history. Um, it's really important to recognize that when we look at the Bible, what we find are people can do corporate confession, but these two things are going on there. There's a unity in this group, like a covenant or a family. So there's a tight connection in an identity as a group, and there's a participation in those sins. It's not confessing sins you didn't do. Um, you are participating in some way um, in the same sins, and therefore you share in that in, in, this, in some way. So we can double-click on that some other time, but it's important to note here as we see Daniel's prayer. 
Daniel also affirms the rightness of God to judge them. They, they've deserved the exile, he says. Look at verse 11. All Israel's transgressed our law and turned aside, refused, or your law, and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. So Daniel's referring to the Mosaic Covenant, which is explained in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the Lord um, entered into this covenant with the people of Israel. And he said, essentially, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and you'll be blessed in the land. If you hate me and despise me and repeatedly reject my commands, then you will be removed from the land and go into exile. And Israel, um, generation after generation, century after century, rejected God. By and large, vast majority of them. Um, the Lord does not have a hair-trigger response. Very patient. And finally, he did send them into exile. And Daniel says, we deserved it. We deserved it then, we deserve it now. You are right. Uh, and we have been wrong. But Daniel knows that God is a God of mercy, and so he turns to supplication. And the focus of his request is on the Lord to end the exile. Bring them back to Jerusalem, restore Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. So that's Daniel's prayer. Now, how does God respond? Well, he sends assurance and he makes a big promise or a collection of promises. So first, the assurance. This is brief, but can't pass over this. When Daniel was praying, uh, did you hear how quickly God responded? Right? As Daniel begins to pray, word goes out. God sends Gabriel, this angel. And listen to what Gabriel said to him in verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. What a line. There's more like that coming in Daniel. So that's what God says to everyone who comes to him for mercy, like Daniel did. You are greatly loved. When we confess our sins to the Lord, we hear this affirmation. We're reminded of this affirmation that we know to be true even before we come, and then we receive that grace from him and forgiveness. So here's how the book of Romans in the New Testament addresses the Christians who live at Rome. And the Lord, I mean, this could be said to any group of Christians. It says, to those in Rome who are loved by God. To those in the Indianapolis area, Zionsville area, who are loved by God. And so he says to Daniel, you are greatly loved. That's the identity of a Christian. So confession here that Daniel did, this is not about beating ourselves up. It's just about being honest with who we are, being honest about our brokenness and then letting God's message of love pour in and heal our hearts. So God gives Daniel this assurance and then he gives them a promise. Now, this is a big picture view of the rest of history. We've seen this kind of big picture view in several chapters now in Daniel with these visions, just the scope of redemptive history coming, hard times, and then salvation. Now, it's hard to understand. It's a dense prophecy, uh, but I do think the general contours are clear enough. So Daniel knows that Israel's time in Babylon should last 70 years. That time's almost up. And so Daniel's saying, Lord, forgive us and restore us to the land. And then what does he hear from God? He essentially hears, yes, the 70 years are up and you'll go back. But there's a deeper exile that still needs to be resolved. There's a longer exile and a greater salvation to come. And it's not 70 years in coming. It's going to be 70 times 7. 
So buckle up. It's good news, but it's a long time in the future. So verse 24, it's the most important verse, and it gives the big picture. It says this, just read it, we can read it together. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, and then he lists six purposes. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place or holy one. So that's the goal of history. Big picture promises of how God will restore all things. This is the, the prophetic proclamation of the gospel message. Can't you just hear Jesus announcing this when he came? Right, clothed in this Old Testament prophetic language, but this is what he came to do. Now, what's with the 70 weeks? Well, I'm going to spare the details here, but here's what I think is the big idea. This is literally 77s, and a week is 70 day, or seven days, so this is 70 cycles of seven. And so it could be 70 weeks. That's why it's called that. And most agree that we're not talking days here, but we're talking years. So how many years is 70 times seven? Well, they didn't teach math well in Bible college, so I had to get a calculator. No, 490. Actually, I think I did, just to double check my math. Anyway, um, why, are the, why are those numbers? And by the way, you can do all sorts of calculations with these. I don't think um, the point is to give um, a precise number here. Seven is a symbolic number in the Bible. So when we think about 490 years, I don't know that we need to kind of have an exact calculation here with that. Because I think what's most significant is the number seven for the Jewish people. Seven is the number of perfection or completeness. God created the world in seven days, six and then rest. Their calendar was marked by cycles of seven years. So in their calendar, uh, the Jewish calendar, God set up the year of Jubilee. And it's, the year of Jubilee was the year when after Israel had seven cycles of seven years. So after 49 years, there would be a year of Jubilee. And this was a year of freedom. It was a year, it's incredible. Debts were removed. Servants were set free. Land that originally belonged to your family that maybe you needed to sell for some reason, given back. Uh, it's just the celebratory years. Everything was reset. It's an incredible idea. And so here's what God is saying to Daniel. History is heading toward a great jubilee. There will be 70 cycles of seven and then a great endless jubilee. The time of freedom and liberation and rejoicing will come. And what will this jubilee be like? Well, the six aspects here, verse 24 transgression will be finished. Sin will be ended. Iniquity will be atoned for. Bring in everlasting righteousness to seal or fulfill the visions of the prophecy. So this is a prophetic way of referring to what Jesus came to do. This is why Jesus came. And do you know what Jesus said when he started his ministry? Luke chapter 4 records one of the beginning moments of his ministry. Jesus is in a synagogue. They're reading from the scroll of Isaiah. It gets to Isaiah 61, and Jesus reads this, and it's proclaiming a jubilee year is coming. It's framing the coming salvation in terms of the year of the Lord's favor, which is referring to this jubilee year. It says this, the Lord has anointed me, Jesus said to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
So Jesus announced his ministry with this. And then in his death, what did he do? He atoned for iniquity. The sin that Daniel confessed here with words like wickedness and treachery and rebellion. We've all done that. And Daniel, like him, we can say that we deserve God's judgment. We deserve eternal death. But what did Jesus come to do? He came to take that judgment, to take the curses of the covenant upon himself. He came to endure the greatest exile so that we could be released from our exile from God's presence. He was forsaken so that we could be included. He died so we could live. He was cursed so we could be blessed. And so now I know this doesn't leave much time to look at the details of verses 25 through 27. That was partly strategic on my part because I don't have all the answers. Um, I'm just kidding. It wasn't strategic, but it is what it is. But let me give the main idea. This unfolds God's plan in three stages. Commend to you um, further research. And, you know, if you do look into this, there's going to be uh, 70 different views that you'll come across on these various things as well. Um, so I just think we need to be patient with one another, not be overly confident uh, without warrant. Um, all through church history from the early centuries, some of the smartest and wisest and Bible-saturated theologians said, this is tough. So here's, here's the main idea. This year of jubilee, this salvation that's coming, and these purposes that we just saw in verse 24 will come. But in order to get there, there'll be three stages that will happen. The first stage comes in verse 25. He says, the first seven weeks, which is 49 years, will come a time for rebuilding the temple in the city. It says, a word will go out for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that happened. The city was rebuilt. Uh, the temple was rebuilt. And it happened in that next generation after Daniel. Stage two comes next in verse 25. It's the next 62 weeks, which is 434 years. It says, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So Israel experienced this troubled time for centuries. From the time of the rebuilding of that city to the time when Jesus came, it was a troubled time. They were always oppressed by other nations. Jesus showed up in the midst of this troubled time when the Roman Empire was still over Israel. Then stage three is the last week. This is verses 26 and 27, and it's a time essentially of two things, redemption and judgment. Now, I'm not clear about what each phrase refers to here in verses 26 and 27, but we see both these themes, redemption and judgment. So redemption's in verse 26. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. An anointed Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. I think referring to the death of Jesus. He was cut off so we could be included. Um, but judgment. And the people of the prince who's to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. I think that's probably referring to the judgment that came upon Jerusalem and the Jewish people in 70 AD. Jesus spoke of that as well. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So here's the big picture. Daniel prays for an end to the exile, and God says, yes, you'll go back, or the people of Israel will go back, but there's a deeper exile to be dealt with. Uh, there's more grace needed. There's a bigger salvation to come. The city will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt, but there'll be centuries of trouble, and they'll be destroyed again. But a great salvation is coming. And we've seen this now. Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and will bring it to completion in his future return, um, is bringing this full salvation 
not just from the penalty of sin, but one day from the, the practice of sin. So what do we do in response to this? Just a couple notes briefly. First, uh, we see from this whole chapter that confession is essential for the Christian life. And yet, in my experience, from my own life and in talking to many others, this is often neglected. But there's, there's no salvation, we know, without confession. Confession is the bridge between our sin and God's forgiveness. He offers forgiveness through Jesus to all who come with repentance and faith. So Jesus taught us to pray as Christians, forgive us our sins. In 1 John 1, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus has made atonement for our sins, and he welcomes us into his friendship. But he asks us for our part to be honest about ourselves and to confess our sins to him and to repent and trust him. So if you have never done this, if you have never come to God through Jesus, confessing your sin and receiving his grace, you're invited to today. Confession isn't some kind of work that you need to add to a big list of other things you need to do. It's admitting that we have already failed and that we have a God of overflowing grace who is willing to receive us. So this isn't complicated, um, but it is hard because we have to be honest. We have to be real with him, but he'll be real with us and gracious to us. And Christians, this isn't just a one-time thing. It's not just the entryway into the Christian life. This is the posture of a Christian life. As long as we're sinning, we should be confessing. But I've noticed, and I'm speaking of my own life here and in talking to many others and, and many of you, uh, that this is actually quite rare. Um, we often trade confession for feeling bad and trying harder. Uh, but then it stays on our conscience and weighs us down. So here's a question I often ask people when someone shares with me that they've had some kind of sin in their recent past or maybe distant past. Maybe it's a really big deal too. I ask them, have you confessed that to God? Hey, have you brought it before him and actually confessed it? Not just become aware that it was bad and felt bad for it and tried to get better. Like, have you actually done this? Have you gone to the Lord and said, God, this is what I've done? And it was wrong and I was wrong. Please forgive me through Jesus. Have you done that? And very often the response is, no, I haven't done that. Uh, but this is Christianity 101 that we're skipping over. And I, I find this in my own life as well. I'll be confessing a sin to a brother, sharing something that I need to be open and honest about in my own life. And then I'll realize as I'm saying this, I'll say, you know, I'm sharing this with you, but I realize I've not actually confessed this to the Lord yet. I've felt bad about it. I've known I want to tell you about it. I've been carrying this. I've tried to get better. I've actually have gotten better. I've not actually confessed this. And so then I need to actually do this. So this is actually something that needs to take shape, actually have a concrete expression in our lives. And the point is not to make us feel bad. The point is to lead us to true joy. Without confession, we carry the sin in our, around on our consciences and push it to some corners of our heart here. But confession is a release it's giving it to the Lord Jesus. It's saying, God, if I have done this and I'm feeling the weight of it, so please forgive me. Release this. Remove this burden. And let me receive afresh the forgiveness that I know you love to give. So true confession isn't morbid. It's not unhealthy self-condemnation. It's not a relic of past religiosity. It's being honest about ourselves before the Lord. 
and it's the path to freedom and joy. And then final note, let's hold on to this future hope that he gives Daniel. In one sense, God's jubilee has already dawned through Jesus. Salvation has come. We're restored to God from our exile from his presence. So let's live in light of that. Live in the freedom that we have. And yet we also know that Jesus will return to bring it to its fullness. Um, We're waiting for him to renew all things. And in the meantime, we're living in Babylon. We're living in um, a culture that's similar to Babylon. We're living in an increasingly post-Christian culture. We're living in times of trouble and likely increased trouble for being God's people. So let's hold on to the hope of God's promises here and let's encourage one another um, through the week with these words. So let's pray together and then sing. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark about the pathway into joy and into restoration. So thank you for giving us even this model in Daniel. So we acknowledge before you that we are weak and that we do still sin more than we would like, more than we should. And we acknowledge this before you, that our hearts are still broken. One sin is enough uh, to warrant your just judgment over us. So we thank you for Jesus, and we come to him and rest in him together, in him alone, uh, for the grace that we need and the forgiveness we need. So we pray that you would help us to be a people who live in light of your grace and your salvation, and who confess our sins and receive this renewal on an ongoing way. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.